but this morning I want us to focus on verse 22 down to uh, the end here, verse number 30, John 10, 22 through 30. Uh, as we look at this great passage, I'm reminded of one reality in reading and doing a biography of uh, George Whitfield years ago for a class uh, project I had due. Uh, the reminder was the dangerous business of preaching. Uh, you can read accounts where George Whitfield and uh, Jonathan or John Wesley and others during England, during that time in England, would ride around, and as they were preaching, it was not uncommon to be pelted with rotten potatoes or rotten eggs and uh, tomatoes and rocks and bricks, even, you know. Uh, so it was a dangerous business. Uh, to go about preaching. Some have noted that uh, preachers would be preaching with blood dripping down their face, having been struck with a rock or uh, maybe a wayward fist uh, as they tried to duck out of the way. Well, there's an incident in John Wesley's life that is notable, and you may have heard it, but he was riding along his horse one day. This is, of course, before they had cars and transportation of that sort so he was riding his horse and realized that it had been about three days since someone had threw a potato or an egg or a brick at him and he had began to or he had been persecuted in any way and he began to wonder if there was something wrong uh, spiritually he had not been hit by anything so he stopped his horse he stepped off of it and he said out loud could it be that i am backslidden and i have sinned (laughs) Uh, slipping down from his horse he knelt and prayed on one knee and asked the lord to show him if there was any wrong with him spiritually and don't you let me just ask you this by way of uh, just a general question do you believe god answers prayer how many of you can say amen to that well as the man was praying knelting down by his horse a man who walked by who did not like john wesley saw him there praying and took a brick and chunked it at him barely missing the preacher and what did wesley say he said thank you lord (laughs) i know i still have your presence well uh, there's many good things we can learn from that i guess uh, god answering prayer sometime quickly uh, but all too often we forget in our current culture of the the turmoil and the consequences of the word of god and preaching the word of god Partly so uh, is because we wrestle with or we're engaged in spiritual warfare. Uh, It's the business of the church that we exist in. I mean, throughout the week and in our own spiritual lives as Christians, we wrestle not with flesh and blood, but with principalities and powers and those things like that. It's true in the life of the church, but it's also true this morning. As you gather here to hear the word of God being preached, as you have heard it throughout last week or the the week after, we we are engaged in spiritual warfare. And there are times that God in his grace and mercy reminds us evidently and, 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 and boldly that this is the case of what is going on, that struggle. And part of that struggle is because Because we know that the word of God is good. And I would say every one of us here this morning, 
not even clarifying what our convictions about the Bible is, would say something of, the, uh, of an amen to that statement. The word of God is good. Uh, but it is not safe. It's not safe. And there's where the, uh, the conundrum or the, the trouble comes from. It has the power to save and comfort us and give unmeasured courage. As we see in the saints' lives and even in the lives of the apostles and many in the word of God, the courage that God has given to them through his promises. And yet at the same time that it could comfort, it also brings about a kind of rebuke, not a kind of, a a bold declaration of rebuke. It brings about conviction and, and condemnation. You might recall the words of Hebrews in chapter number 4, verses 12 and 13. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of the soul and of the spirit, of joints and marrow, discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart, and no creature is hidden from its sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him whom we must give account. In one part, we read a passage like we read in our opening this morning in John 10, and we are shocked to find the the response of Jesus' preaching. This is Jesus, the Son of God, and uh, the great comforter, the good shepherd, preaching to a people, and the response is they want to pick up stones and put him to death. And I think much of our response is because in our modern age, our greatest efforts and ambitions as a church in general is to avoid the difficulty of the word of God. You may not agree with that. That may just be my assessment of it. But in large part, Jesus has become something in the Christian circles of a docile figure who is completely safe uh, without any of the the hardness or any of the difficulty in his sayings or speech or sermons that we find throughout the gospel narrative. In fact, we go to great lengths to ignore hard things that the scripture teaches us, reinvent them, distorting them uh, to resemble something more manageable. Again, this may just be my own assessment, but I Uh, The books you read, the people you see preaching and teaching, the church's stance, liberal Christianity, and and you could go on and on. This seems to be the status quo. But our present comfort, and I say this uh, just as confident as I can say it, and and to encourage you as much as I can encourage you, our, our present comfort for the believer and our future hope does not rest in our strength nor our wisdom. Rather, in the strength and wisdom of God and all of his holy word. And that is what we see here this morning in this passage as we come to consider this relentless keeping of God through the good shepherd. And I want to walk through this passage this morning considering the plainness of Jesus' teaching and the promises that he offers to his, his people. Now, Your Bible is open. Let's read again verse 22 through verse 30. At the time of the Feast of Dedication took place at Jerusalem, it was winter. 
And Jesus was walking in the temple and the colonnade of Solomon. And so the Jews were gathered around him and said to him, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. And Jesus answered them, I told you and do not believe me. And you do not believe me. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me. But you do not believe because you're not among my sheep. My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. I will give them eternal life or I give them eternal life and they will never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. My father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of the father's hand. I and the father are one. The Jews picked up stones again to stone him. Of course, he goes on to explain why they did that, because he made himself equal with God. And yet I want us to just begin opening this up this morning, uh, considering the first part of this and really this plainness of Jesus's teaching to these uh, these Jews. And and we might uh, just say his enemies, the Pharisees and scribes and those who were really skeptical about his ministry. That's what you see here. And the Feast of Dedication, of course, is that time back, dating back to 164 B.C. when the Maccabean Revolt had had pushed out um, the Greeks out of the area, out of Jerusalem. Uh, The temple had laid desecrated in the sense of they offered swine's blood on on the altar to Zeus. And so they defiled the temple and for three years, three and a half years, it laid dormant no sacrifice to god had been offered up in jerusalem and so in 164 there was a rededication a celebration that that really resembled the feast of tabernacles we won't go into all the details of that Uh, there's a lot of resources that you can look up and uh, that gives you the information about that Uh, but nevertheless it was this time winter time in december when uh, this took place and as they come to him they come to ask him This is not new. They've come to him again. Tell us who you are since the beginning of the gospel of John. Verse 24. So the Jews gathered around him and said to him, how long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. I wanted to be told. Tell us yes or no or give us something plain so that we can take on. Now, we know that Jesus spoke in parables in many of, the gospel, many of the other gospels, or all the other gospels, he spoke in parables, and part of that was concealing truth. The Bible tells us that. Uh, it was intentional. But in the gospel of John, it isn't parables that Jesus speaks through. We saw earlier in the gospel of John, he spoke through a metaphor of shepherd and sheep. And, and all throughout the earlier chapters, Jesus spoke in symbolism in the sense that he was taking all of the Old Testament feasts and celebrations and provisions God had, had provided in the Old Testament. And he says, this is who I am and what I've come to do. We know that he's the bread that's come down from heaven. He is the living water and he is the light of the world and so on it goes. And so he is trying to explain to them with an understanding that they had of God's faithfulness, his goodness, his covenant relationship to Israel and his promises. He said, you see all these things. This is exactly who I am and what I've come to do. They, they should have known it. Should have been clear. And Jesus even says that. You've seen the work that I did. 
At one time you heard what I've said, the words that are not mine, the Father's, and so on it goes. And so here these people says, come tell us plainly. Don't speak like you spoke to in a metaphor. And so Jesus just plainly lays it out there. I want to say before we look at Jesus' response to them, that we might say, well, they come in a sense of confusion. They come to Jesus because they just don't have all of the, the pieces to put together or they're coming together more information so that they can, they can make a, a valid decision about this man for themselves. But that is not the case. And it's not to be uncharitable or to be harsh, but it's the reality of things. Jesus is even rebuke here and later on uh, he tells them, you can see that in verse number uh, 37 and 38, uh, that they have seen all that could be seen to verify who he is. Their coming to him was more of a demonstration of their unbelief and skepticism. They were coming to try to catch him at something to have against him, to, to, in, in their cunning and craftiness to, to, to put him down, as it were, or to distort him, or to discredit him. Now, there is a kind of wisdom we have in our age where skepticism is seen as, as the end thing. You know, the Bible says there is that idea or that mentality of ever learning and never coming to the knowledge of anything. And we see that in many, uh, many studies, but that is most significant and profound in religion. It's okay to be spiritual. It's okay to be religious. It's okay to, be, to like God, not like God, not be sure what all that means. Uh, and actually, the, the great mantra is, and the great sin of that kind of thinking is being dogmatic about anything other than you shouldn't be dogmatic. And all that is is a manifestation of relentless, stubborn unbelief against God. Which these who were standing before Jesus were well equipped with. In fact, what you find in this religious crowd of the Jews, they should have been the first to embrace Jesus. The first to see him for who he is. The first to acknowledge and put the pieces together. And yet we find that they are continually coming back to this same argument. Give us a little bit more and we might believe. And there is a danger of that mentality in our world. And that kind of thinking. And if you're here this morning, you've never put your faith in Christ and you're kind of holding yourself back on the edge and you've heard the gospel and you've understood kind of it's working out and you're waiting for something else there's nothing else to offer you than what Christ has done and what the word of God has said and sometimes that safety guard that we want to stay somewhat in and and all the way out or or be committed without being committed is is devilish and damning It was the very case of these people here. We must come to that place of, of what Elijah told the children of Israel. Choose you this day whom you're going to serve. If the gospel, if Christ be who he is and the gospel be what it is. And, and you've heard that and you've understood that. Then the only response appropriate leading to salvation is to accept that. Put your faith in that. 
put it over to the side and to reject that is to demonstrate your relentless, stubborn unbelief. This is the very thing Jesus is exposing. But notice what he says in verse number 6. It is a word of judgment against the people for sure. But it is a difficult word. Now, verse 25, Jesus answered them, I told you, and you do not believe, the works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me. Now, we'll look at that more next week because he brings that argument up again, um, or not next week, the week after when we get back into John. Uh, But basically saying, you should have known this. It should have been obvious of what you've seen. But he says in verse number 26, he gives a justification. He is not surprised because of their unbelief. He's not shocked. We may be shocked. And in fact, I think we should be shocked when it comes to religious group who have have devoted themselves to following the law of Moses so meticulously when their Messiah comes. They respond in unbelief and want to kill him. But he gives a reason for that here. You do not believe because you are not among my sheep. You do not believe because you are not given to me. You do not belong to me. If you belong to me, you would follow me. If you belong to me, you would believe. You take the opposite of that of what he says in the declaration of his sheep. And the reason you don't believe is because you are not mine. I understand this morning, because their unbelief is telling to the relationship with Jesus, and I understand this morning that many here and the doctrine of election and predestination is a very difficult thing to grapple with. And oftentimes we see men disagreeing on that. And so we wonder where will we stand and trying to stand in the middle. We seem to get, get pulted on both sides of the argument, whether it's Calvinism or Arminianism or whatever it may be. I do want to note one thing. Uh, there's many things I could say, but I do want to note one thing because this could be a theme all in itself, but this is not the words of Paul, not the words of John Calvin or any other religious leader throughout church history, but this is Jesus' words. And some of your Bibles see that. You see it in red. It's read in my Bible, but I underline it just, just to kind of make the point in my own mind. Jesus is saying to them, you do not belong to me. That is why you don't believe. That's just an honest reading of the text. And that what we find by implication of this and what the Bible teaches in many other passages, Ephesians 1, many other places such as Romans 8 and uh, that we might be able to turn to that God has from the foundation of the world set his love on a people from every tongue, tribe and nation for his own possession and he has given them to his son. And they are his sheep. Well, again, I say this is very difficult. There may be great disagreement here on that issue. And you need to wrestle with the text yourself, and I understand that. But I want to say there are are a few things clearly that I want to mention concerning this before we look at the promises that he gives us. There is one point that is made clear in this case. And that is... If just putting the pieces together on your own 
was all you needed to do, then these men would have been there. They had all of the, they had all of the raw material. They had all of the story and the buildup. They had all of the covenant and promises and belonging. They had all of the, the I's dotted and T's crossed. If it was up to you and it was all on your own ability or you could do it all by yourself or all it took was just putting the logical pieces together, then these men would have been the first in line to believe in Jesus. They were religious, devoutly so. And just to put it another way, they would have put us to shame in the meticulous way in which they demonstrated their self-righteousness. You can read that in Matthew 23. And that just reminds us of the sweetness and the necessity of the drawing work of the Holy Spirit. Where would we be if God had left us to ourselves? And just plastered for us a gospel message on a billboard. And just waited for us to put the pieces together and get there on our own. We would still be in our sins. I'm reminded of a debate between Charles Simeon who was known in England to be a Calvinist. And John Wesley who would have been uh, older than Simeon at that time. Who was an Arminian. So they both comment this situation at two different Two different angles, and those of you who are familiar with that kind of debate, you'll, you'll know the tension and heated disagreements between both groups. But Charles Simeon began his debate with a series of questions, and you could look at the whole debate on your own. It's uh, worth looking up. He asked, Sir, do you feel a depraved creature, so depraved that you would never have thought of turning to God if God had not first put it into your heart? To which Wesley responded, yes, I, I do indeed. He asked again, and do you utterly despair of recommending yourself to God by anything you can do and look for salvation solely through the blood of the righteousness of Christ? Which Wesley responded, yes, solely through Christ. Now we may have some disagreements, but there's essential, uh, there is that, that base foundation of that essential saving work and redeeming business has been committed to Christ, and he is faithful to accomplish it. If you want assurance of your salvation, there is nowhere else to look and turn to than Jesus Christ. But I want you to know as you turn and look to him, look at the promises he offers you this morning. Secondly, not only the plainness of his teaching, but the promises that he offers his sheep. And he does this beginning in verse number 27 by describing the sheep or giving us a description of the sheep. Some of what we talked about last week for those of you who are with us. And, and then he gives some promises of working out. I'll read it for you. My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. I give to them eternal life and they will never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. My father who has given them to me is greater than all. And no one is able to snatch them out of my father's hand. Now, I, you could almost just say, amen, close your Bible, go home and have a nice meal. And in fact, just read all of John 10 and be amazed at the confidence Jesus speaks. He is not wishy-washy. He is not passive. He is not thinking this thing might work out. He speaks with definite language, with, with understanding of who he is, what he's accomplishing, and what he offers. 
We saw that last week in verse number 16. Notice it again, just because the language just is such encouragement. I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also. They will listen to my voice, so there will be one flock and one shepherd. Not a doubt in his mind. And the same thing we find here in this passage. But the first thing we see of this is a description of the sheep. he, He describes them first. There are those who hear his voice. Those whom the Spirit of God has awakened to the voice of the shepherd. Those who, uh, the Bible and, and, and the inward work of the Holy Spirit, the inward voice of the Holy Spirit is not just some muffled sound of, of, of noise ringing, ringing, but of, of the voice of their shepherd. They know his voice. They hear his voice. It is through the word of God that God uses to call out men and women. The word that he chooses to use this great work of calling his sheep. I just want to ask you, have you heard the voice of Jesus? Have you heard him call you from sin? Resting in your own ability and your own strength from your waywardness and to come and follow the shepherd? Have you heard the voice of God? And I'm not speaking audibly. There are moments in our life where the Holy Spirit impresses upon our heart or presses upon our heart the truth of His Word in certain ways that it is almost as if we could say, God told me. Sometimes we do that, and it gets a bit confusing because other people say that, and it's not the voice of God. But it is the Word of God that He speaks to us through calls us from our waywardness, calls us to rest and trust in him. And it is no surprise, is it, that as a Christian, as he calls us to himself and in converting us, he not only gives us a heart for the Savior, but he gives us a heart for his word. And that like Peter, we, we step back and, and we refer to it as those precious promises. His word is a delight and a treasure, and all the other ways that it is described for the dear saints. And why? Because the sheep hear the voice of the shepherd. They know it. They follow it. But secondly, and we mentioned this last week, they're known by Jesus. Notice again, verse number uh, 27, they hear the voice of the shepherd. They know, or he knows them. And this speaks to that intimate relationship with him, uh, and that, that closeness, that personal care, that the sheep have with their shepherd. Thirdly, in this description of the sheep, he says, and they follow me. Where are you walking? What way are you walking? What's your, what's your life look like? Where's your destination? And what are you going after chasing in this world? I think it was Spurgeon who said, and I'll I'll quote it very sloppily because I didn't write it down word for word, something to the effect of reminding us he does not call us to follow the law. Though we walk in obedience to the word, don't we? He doesn't call us to follow a denomination. Those things are helpful to describe certain doctrinal truths. 
He doesn't call us to follow a religious figure in the sense of some TV personality or some great speaker or or whatever you're supposed to do on Twitter or any of those things like that. He doesn't even tell us to follow a movement. But who are the sheep following? Jesus. All those things I mentioned are good and helpful as they are pointing us to and leading us to and directing us to the Savior. We're following him. He is leading us and directing us. He goes before us. I don't want you to notice the promises he gives to us in verse number 28. And 29, he says, I give to them eternal life. They will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of my father's hand. Now, if we're honest, there are some whose understanding of God's saving work lead to a unsettled state of confusion concerning salvation. We, we the battle with the question, are we really secured in Christ? Can you and I really have confidence? And, and does that confidence come by resting in him and then partly resting in us? What do you think? What do they mean by this? And, and what does this mean? Well, there is that threat, as some teach in our society and Colleges in New York and even denominations within New York and even our immediate area teach. I did really good by not naming names, didn't I? <laughs> that while God offers us salvation freely, this eternal life, we still have that looming threat of falling away or becoming spiritually dead again by backsliding as the as the language goes one writer uh, put it this way or explained it this way in all mainstream christian theology salvation still isn't ours to possess it is always and only god who saves well that's fairly good in that sense we cannot lose salvation But we can fall away from it, or to use another metaphor, we can move so far from the saving streams of God's love and power that we parch and spiritually die. What is he saying to us? Well, clearly he's saying that God is a saving God. Salvation is of the Lord as long as we are putting ourselves within the stream of his saving work. God is a bystander enabling, giving freely to anyone who come and puts themselves under the fountain. But if you remove yourself from that fountain, then you will return to that spiritual deadness. And if you remain in that state, you will die and perish eternally. That's kind of the theology and how that sort of thing works. Now, I want to say this, that there is the idea that there are people in the world... Christians or people who claim themselves to be Christians who have a profession of faith. They say, I believe Jesus. 
and I'm a Christian, and I prayed a prayer, or I did the things that went through the movement that my church made me go through, and so I, I was confirmed, and, and they went through all of that, and they claimed themselves to be Christians, and yet those same people have no, no possession of true saving grace. They prove sometimes to be apostate, in the worst case, and at other times they just prove themselves to be unbelievers. That is evident. It's evident in the word of God and it's evident in our Christian or throughout history. But I want to say from what Jesus is promising to us here this morning, that if God has began a work in you, then he will finish it. We use that old saying, once saved, always saved. Many of you grew up in churches that use that saying and and maybe not like it is an awkward and it's been abused in many ways. But there is some truth to that statement that if God has began a saving work in you, the Holy Spirit has regenerated you and brought you spiritually alive, then he will keep you spiritually alive and present you before himself faultless. And that's what the Bible teaches. That's what Jesus is speaking to here. Not of you keeping yourself, but of him keeping you notice very quickly statement he makes my sheep hear my voice let's go in verse number 28 what promises he gives to us the first of is eternal life and this is not just duration as you know we know we will never die or cease to exist we will live in one state or another either in eternal blessedness in the presence of god which is described as life in particular eternal life, or we will live in eternal terror in separation from God, which is referred to as the second death. So what Jesus is saying to his people, what he's saying to us this morning, is that Jesus gives to his sheep eternal life. Fellowship with God to receive the life-giving blessedness of his presence and his blessings of purpose and glory, belonging, inheritance, of cure and love and heaven and all the other things that we could name. He gives them eternal life. The second thing we note in verse number 28, they will never perish. Isn't that remarkable? Promise. To emphasize Christ's provision of eternal life, his sheep will never perish. They will never come under destruction or be consumed in judgment. That's what the cross is all about. To remove the, the perishing, to remove the condemnation, to remove the judgment which befalls us. And because that wrath has been removed, we will never come up under that, that dread of judgment. Now that is not to say, beloved, that we don't come up under correction. The Bible says that can be painful. And maybe you can say amen to that. Amen. Some of you seem like you speak from experience. Well, what does he say when he speaks about correction? And who does God correct? Those whom he loves. And so we will never perish. Jesus does not say here that they will never perish, maybe. That would not be very comforting, would it? But he says they will never perish. The next thing he mentions here in verse number 28, the reason they will never perish, no one will snatch them out of my Hand. Don't you like that? It's because we don't keep ourselves. 
It is Christ who keeps us. This does not diminish the call to press on and persevere and believe. But our endurance and hope for securing the end result lies not in our competency, not in our resources, but in the resources and competency and the power of our good shepherd. No one will snatch them from his hand. He says, no thief, no wolf, a fox or any other danger will overtake the sheep because of the grip on them is his. He is saying to us in verse number 28, I got you. I got you. And no one will snatch you from my hands. Who is greater than the son? Well, in case you're saying, well, I don't know how to answer that question. He adds to that, doesn't he, in the next verse. Not only does he have us and no one will snatch us, he will keep us. My father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of my father's hand. In case you don't think my grip is strong enough, let's put God in the equation, God the father. And let me say again, no one's going to snatch you out of my hand. Where does our security rest? Well, it rests in the Trinity, the spirit of God within us and the son of God who secured us and the father who has who is keeping us. Uh, You you just even uh, amuse ourselves at some point thinking about the reality. Who's ever stole from God? Who could could deceive him, trick him to get a bad deal? Outsmart him in some other way or, or twist his arm enough to make God cry uncle? No one. He has no equal. There's not even like anywhere near an equal to him. He spoke, and I think you know the biblical narrative, but he spoke, and you know what happened? Stuff. <laughs> Stuff happened. And you and I know the futility of our own. We speak all the time. Nothing happens most of the time. <laughs> but out of nothing, he created all things, whether they're in heaven or under heaven spiritual, physical, whatever it may be, they're all created by him and for him. And, and he is saying here that his, his keeping work is secured because he is the one securing it. Now we know that the many fears that grip us, whether it be death or failure, sickness, weakness, poverty, the unknown, any number of things that come at us and keep us awake worrying. And, and these are not just physical things we deal in this world. We, we transport these into the spiritual realm and think about this when it comes to our own eternal life and, and heaven and hell and all these things. These are the things that overwhelm us and, and grip us. And yet, can any of these threaten God? There is no equal to his majesty, or wisdom, or his power. By the virtue of his own resurrection destroyed the works of death. So there's that one marked off. And he doesn't call us to salvation based upon our success, but the success of our Savior. You were failing before you came to Christ. You think your, your security rests after you come to Christ on your, on your success and able to keep yourself? Our sickness and our weakness, but isn't it his strength and his his healing that we long for and that we look to? Our poverty, and yet there's the riches of his mercy and grace and 
resources he gives to us, the unknown, and, and he is sovereign. Do you know that? You don't know what tomorrow is going to hold. Neither do I. We got plans. You can join us for those plans. It may be fun for some of you. Others it may not be fun. It's called work for a reason. But you know, God knows what tomorrow is going to hold. Our security in this life and in the life to come does not rest in our limited wisdom and our limited understanding and insight, but in his infinite wisdom and his ability to keep and finish what he started. And you know, many of you, maybe it's been your testimony, have been miserable, had seasons in your life in a miserable state of confusion. And I think part of that, part of that fear, part of that scare uh, that you've experienced and that overwhelmingness was the insecurity because your eyes were on you and not on the competency of your Savior. You were continually confused by your own incompetence. And I don't mean that to put you down. But you are not able to save yourself. Do you know that? Our saving comes from him. And not just our saving, but our keeping comes from him. He keeps us. And you know that as a kid, many of you have told your child when you're in, a, in maybe a mall or a shopping area, a place that's dangerous and a lot of people are on vacation. You tell your child to hold my hand. When we get out of the car, you got to hold my hand the whole time. How many of you said that to somebody? And how many of you thought when that child grabbed your hand that their entire safety, their life depends on how tight they grab a hold of your hand? How many of you believe that? Well, that would be ridiculous. Especially kids nowadays with ADD, they're holding your hand one minute, they're not the next minute. The, the, the safety, the protection, the, the security rests in the parent's ability to hold the kid's hand. And sometimes they don't know that. And then sometimes they do when they try to get away from you, right? I think we can say that's the same way in the Christian life, isn't it? Christ preserves us. He keeps us. It is his hold on us. And praise God for that. Let me just uh, mention uh, uh, the words to a hymn that you're familiar with as we come to a close it goes like this, when my fear my faith will fail, Christ will hold me fast. When the tempter would prevail, he will hold me fast. I can never keep my hold through life's fearful path, for my love is often cold and he must hold me fast. Those he saves are his delight, Christ will hold me fast. Precious in his holy sight, he will hold me fast. He'll not let my soul be lost. His promise shall last. Bought by him at such a cost, he will hold me fast. For my life he bled and died. Christ will hold me fast. Justice has been satisfied. He will hold me fast. Raised with him to endless life, he will hold me fast. Till our faith is turned aside when he comes at last. Doesn't that capture our hope and assurance that Jesus will hold us fast? He gives to his sheep eternal life and no one is able to snatch them from his hand. 
Again, I just close with that thought. Many of our insecurities and fears rest in our concentration on ourselves. What the Bible does oftentimes and what this passage does, it it ignites our hearts and it, it changes our focus to remind us that our security and our confidence and our courage rest in our Savior, not in us. And do you know this assurance? Do you have this kind of assurance? Isn't it found in what we have seen earlier? Have you put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ? Have you heard his voice to lay down your sin, set aside your rebellion and turn and trust him wholly? And are you now following him? And if you haven't never, if you have never done that, I would encourage you to do that even this morning as I pray here in just a moment. Christian, set your eyes and your heart on the great promise of our Savior. He is good. Listen to his voice. And let me just remind you, uh, as he leads us along, it reminds us in the darkness, doesn't it, that we are secure and safe in his hand. And it reminds us when things are not dark and things are going well that our greatest hope and confidence isn't in the things that are going well and the resources or blessing God gives us here, but is in the true riches of the promise of what he will give us and what he has given us in Christ to come. And sometimes we need that as a reminder as well. Pray with me. Father, we thank you for this morning. We gather together. Thank you for your word. Precious promises, Peter calls them, and rightly so, they are ours. They're ours bought for us, not by our own efforts and our own doing, but in the, in the efforts and the doing and the bloodshed of Jesus Christ. He is the good shepherd, not just laying down his life for the sheep for one moment, but raising up, being raised from the dead to continually provide that security and comfort and confidence and keeping work until he comes and brings us home. Lord, we look for that day. May it be today in Jesus' name. Amen.